Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. I wanted to hop on here. I know I just did an episode talking about how I wasn't going to record any more solo episodes until like September out of burnout, but there's so much bullshit and vitriol and hatefulness being spewed at survivors right now. That I thought it was incredibly important to come on here and to speak a little bit about this. Part of that is, is because one of the ways that I feel really helps me, not just with like my burnout, but also helps me in being a human is being able to speak to my community and be active in this community when this kind of stuff happens that I definitely have a lot of strong urges right now to just melt into a puddle on my couch. I know that that's not going to make me feel better and it does nothing to make this better. But if there's any other couch puddles out there, sending all my love to you. Hope that this can offer you some comfort and connection as well. I'll be honest, I'm having a whole lot of different kinds of feelings about what's going on. I'm really fucking pissed and extremely disappointed in our culture right now and our community and the public and very scared too. I think that's just part of the survivor part of me that is feeling that sense of wanting to hide and cover up and that fear and shame that comes out whenever we are attacking survivors because whenever a survivor is attacked publicly, it attacks all of us and we all feel it so deeply. And I think the shame for me is not necessarily about this experience of that I'm not a good enough person or I'm, I'm a bad thing, but has more to do with seeing the message clearly from the community right now that someone like me is not welcome, that I am not to be believed. You know, I shouldn't dare to think that my life is more important than somebody else's reputation and access to millions upon millions of dollars on top of the millions they already have, that my life and my well-being and my safety does not matter at all. And that I am just another hateful creature like any of the other survivors who dares to come forward, that fills me with a tremendous amount of shame and these urges to just kind of curl up and hide and to be small and to stay safe and and protected away from all of this. And I imagine so many of you are feeling that way too, as we see this. And it's so common because this happens so often that anytime, you know, someone makes allegations against a public figure, against a celebrity, dare they, you know, ever make them against a beloved athlete. My God, the public comes with porches and pitchforks ready to totally annihilate the survivor that dared to challenge the image they have of their idol. I do believe that it is idolizing what people are doing right now to the situation. And and, and what I'm speaking about, you know, if you're listening to this episode later in the year or in other years is I'm speaking about a very public lawsuit that's happening around defamation between two celebrities where one celebrity made a report that this other celebrity was abusive and raped them. That celebrity who is identified as the perpetrator is now suing the victim for defamation, saying that it wasn't true and that what this person said ruined their career. 
it's just so frustrating because we always come back to this idea that a man's reputation in his career is more important and worth more to everyone, to the public, to the people, to the way our world operates than a woman's life. And sometimes it's many women's lives, as we've seen in other cases as well. And it's heartbreaking and infuriating and scary. It's absolutely terrifying all at the same time. But yeah, so I'm feeling a tremendous amount of like pressure and tension right now. I can feel it in my shoulders and my neck and my back, just kind of this sense of like protective curling around myself, you know, and this just kind of holding and waiting and just bracing for all of this continued hatefulness and and spite to come out of the public and hoping and waiting for it to just die down and to go away as it will eventually as this all kind of dissipates and everything floats away these two people you know i can't imagine anyone's going to come out of this okay although i do think you know someone who's a multimillionaire is much more likely to be okay than the person who is not but it's not okay but we're all going to move on the public's going to move on from this the public is serving a purpose right now which is just to come in and reinforce rape culture and then as soon as it gets out of our feet we just we move on the public rises up to make sure that they maintain the status quo elsewhere with some other issue all of this stuff like everybody who thinks they know something about what went on about what victims typically look like how they typically behave it's all just misogyny the speed at which we as a public so quickly lashed out against the victim as soon as we felt like we had justification to do so and how quickly we believe the perpetrator when he denied any allegations and said that it was a lie, just indicates how much misogyny is there. The misogyny is the speed at which we attack the woman and defend the man, and also the degree and the intensity behind all of that. People feel so justified in being hateful right now, and that's terrifying, and that's also the misogyny. It rolls on itself, it builds this snowball, and it keeps the machine moving, and ultimately that machine is really just to kind of keep us all under its thumb. And as survivors, this is an incredibly difficult and painful place to be. I wanted to first talk a little bit about some facts just to clear the air on a couple of things. I'm not going to talk about this case because I don't think that's important. And it actually is one of the things that I think is rape culture speaking through all of us is when we come to what we believe are the facts about the case. We're not privy to this case. We don't have the evidence. We're not sitting on the jury. It's not for us to decide who's at fault and who's telling the truth and who is lying. I also think that it's likely that there are a lot of people that are very well-meaning, even survivors that are trying to figure out what's going on because we are committed to supporting survivors and we want to figure out who that is and how we can take action here. And I'll get to that a little bit later about how we can do this in an effective way as people who are just members of the public and not people deciding this case and not people in the immediate support group for these two individuals as well. But I'm going to talk about facts about gender-based violence. First of all, the term gender-based violence has been coined, you know, from the global sphere to refer to intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And we use this phrase for a number of reasons because, you know, the first one and the most important one is really that when we use the term domestic violence or intimate partner violence, our government leaders, you know, the change makers, the policy makers dismiss the issues as being just some sort of individual anomaly that happens in the home. And it's family business. It's something that is not actually an issue that they should be involved in or legislate. 
that this is more of an individual issue. It's not something that is global or, you know, a bigger systemic issue, which it actually is. What history has shown us is actually that this violence is a systemic instrument that is used to continue to perpetrate violence and disenfranchise a group of people based on their gender. This is one of the ways that that we reinforce that disenfranchisement and continue to funnel power over to a idealized gender. And so in our culture, that is, you know, white cis males, people who are not white cis males are subjugated to them. So we have gender-based violence and the way that it occurs in the relationships and how our system at large supports and reinforces that, including the dismissal of it utilizes that to continue to keep people disenfranchised and to keep them from being able to live their full lives and to be powerful people in a culture and possibly upset the balance of power. So that's the first thing. So in gender-based violence, there's always a power imbalance. This is something that I learned because we kept tossing around the phrase mutual abuse. And I know that I definitely connected with that term And I think it was more out of my own urges to make this an easier conversation and one that I didn't have to get involved in. And that was how I was living against my own values because I could step out and be like, this just isn't about anything and I don't have to feel anything about it and I don't have to do anything about it. And it was a way of almost like deliberate dissociation from what I was experiencing of this out of my own fear. You know, and what that does is that ultimately pushes us and pushed me to a place of not getting involved where maybe we should be getting involved. If I want to change culture, I have to step in and fucking change it. And so that was one of the things that came up was that mutual abuse does not exist. This is not a thing. What we see is that there's always an imbalance of power in the relationship and the violence is used to reinforce the power structure and control the victim. And so, you know, those methods of control, in addition to violence, are things like isolating the victim from supports and people who might intervene or interfere in different ways, controlling what they're doing and their activities, surveilling them and monitoring them, controlling their finances and committing financial abuse. These are all ways that there is this reinforcement of control and power and violence. And the threat of violence is also a part of reinforcing that control. Gender-based violence is also very, very common that victims are also engaging in physical acts of violence as well. This is always an act of self-defense that obviously, you know, we have fight, flight, and freeze. And fight is one of the responses to trauma to try to save our lives. And victims will fight back against their perpetrator. What we see with that pattern of violence is that oftentimes Victims are fighting in a way where they are inflicting wounds or injuries on very visible places in the body. That will be like extremities and limbs and faces. And the reason is, is because it's just an act of self-defense. And so we're, you know, just flailing around Um, while perpetrators tend to wound and injure victims in places that are hidden. And it's because these are very calculated attacks to cause a lot of injury and harm, but also prevent any accountability or interference from anyone on the outside that might see it. This is also why we actually have this major issue where law enforcement has a tendency to actually arrest the victim, mistaking them to be the perpetrator. And that's because obviously the victim is going to be incredibly distraught and agitated and terrified and unable to answer questions very effectively, especially because they've been living under this threat that if anyone found out about the abuse, they probably would be killed or harmed um, in some way, shape or form, but also because they aren't showing any of the injuries 
Whereas the perpetrator usually presents very, very calm and calculated, engages in gaslighting of the victim to the police officers, which can cause the victim to escalate even further, and is also showing visible injuries. And so the police end up thinking like, well, this person is calm and they're telling me, you know, all of these different things. This person is agitated and upset and was acting kind of shady about some of this stuff. And so they make the wrong arrest. This is very, very, very common. It is also extremely common that as part of the threats that control a victim and prevent them from coming forward and seeking safety is to threaten and act on public exposure, humiliation, and defamation lawsuits. This is extremely common as a way of trying to, again, continue to control the victim and prevent the perpetrator from any any kind of accountability or justice. And this is also the threats that oftentimes make it so that victims are too terrified to leave the relationship or tell anybody that's any that anything is going on and just reinforces the control that the perpetrator has on the victim. What I think is really upsetting is just how much vitriol is coming from the public through this. You know, so many people insist that they have the information. They know how victims act, and this is not what a victim looks like. And it's a very, very common trope that a perpetrator gets brought to some sort of accountability, and the public responds with, is the victim believable? That is rape culture. It's misogyny. Our culture is so deeply entrenched in misogyny and it comes out in these different ways. And what's important to be mindful of, just as I said before, that it's very common that victims do engage in acts of violence in the relationship. It's not mutual violence. It's not mutual abuse. It's self-defense and it's protective. Those acts of violence don't actually mean that the victim was not abused. And that's one of the things that oddly is coming up in this case is that, well, this person must not be believed because she also attacked him too. When you really break it down and when we really understand what's happening, that not only makes no sense, it's actually factually inaccurate, that belief. But we buy into that belief and we buy into this myth and we look at these experts that you know apply these labels that allow us to invalidate people. So she has borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. You know where those come from? Severe trauma. People who are in trauma, actively in trauma, especially psychological abuse where there is gaslighting and invalidation, they look like they have borderline symptoms. They look exactly the same. Why on earth would we ever use those diagnoses as a way of completely invalidating the report this person is making? Did you all know that I think the statistics are like 85% of people with borderline personality disorder also meet criteria for PTSD and like 98% of people with borderline personality disorder reported issues and incidents of trauma that occurred in their past, the vast majority of which were sexual violence. So it makes absolutely no sense that we would believe that someone with borderline personality disorder is not telling the truth about having suffered abuse and sexual assault. But we, we hold on to that. Misogyny tells us do not believe women. But ultimately, misogyny is telling us like women are worthless. Women are to be subjugated. Women are to be restrained. And the way that we restrain women is by making sure that we can still enact violence towards them. And we, we have to make sure then that we're protecting our perpetrators in order to do that. And so we have to look at 
all of these things that are coming up and all of the vitriol and all of the hate and all of the doubt and the invalidation that's being thrown at the survivor here as misogyny and as the myths and the assertions and the mud that misogyny likes to fill us with and really see that for what it is and call it out if you can. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how do we practice believing all survivors in this situation, because this challenges us, you know, even, even all of us who are very well-meaning survivors who really want to be supporting survivors here, you know, we, we can get caught up in this too, because we still live in rape culture. And so it's going to be alive in us as well. And this is going to happen. Like I said, I was falling victim to, to rape culture this week too, and buying into some of the messaging, this idea that it's not my problem and I'm going to step out of it. And, you know, I'm not going to have an opinion. This doesn't involve me. And I'm a survivor. It involves me, fucking involves me, involves all of us. And I think the important thing that comes up is, is what we keep trying to tell everybody is that the people involved in this case, it's highly unlikely that they're going to hear any of the stuff that anyone says about their opinion of their case, whether or not they're believable, whether or not this matters, what, what's important and what do, what do people deserve, which is some of the most disgusting stuff coming up. They're not going to hear that, but the people who are going to hear that are all the survivors around you. And when we know that one in three women and one in five men and one in two trans people are survivors of sexual violence, we know for sure that we are all surrounded by people who are coping with, surviving, and trying to recover from sexual trauma. We know this. We know that this is who is surrounding us right now, and they are hearing our words. And my heart breaks for the ones who haven't told anybody yet and maybe haven't even figured it out themselves. They just know they went through something terrible and it feels awful and they're confused and they're really scared. And then they get this message from everybody that they're crazy if they were to report this to anyone and that their lives will be destroyed and who they know themselves to be will be completely annihilated if they were to even think about what might have happened to them or admit it. This is something that not only shoves survivors deeper underground, but it makes it impossible for us to recover. I'm hoping that what we talk about here and continue to talk about will help provide some sort of light in that, that incredibly scary dark place, those caves that we, we bury ourselves into when we try to get through these things. And also hopefully gets enough of us really riled up and activated and mobilized to start to speak back and push back. The first thing is, is how do we practice the value of believing all survivors when this stuff happens? The thing that I think can be the most powerful here is to notice and observe all the thoughts, assertions, beliefs, questions that come up about this specific situation and this survivor when you think about whether or not to believe her. All of those questions, all of those assertions, any yeah, buts, or any confusion, or any like, mm, I'm not sure I have this question, that is the root of rape culture deep within you. And what's really nice about this is that it's showing its face and you can do something to pull it out of you. And this is what you can do. You can write all of these things down. You can say them out loud again from a very non-judgmental place because we can't 
engage in any kind of self-examination if we're doing it from a judgmental place. We do it from a compassionate place. I am a survivor living in rape culture. Of course, I'm going to sometimes buy into that at the very least out of self-protection and at the most because this is the air that I breathe. And so I want to see what pollutants of that rape culture air have made it into me so that I can remove them. So write down all of those things, any of the yeah, buts, any of the myths, any of the beliefs, any of the things that cause you to pause when you're asked to believe this survivor, write all of them down and then go through and ask yourself, where does this come from? And who does this help? Who does it, who benefits from me having this belief? List all the people that benefit from us having those beliefs and who does this hurt? And then see if as you examine it, how you can engage with that thought, belief, question in a way that aligns with supporting and believing survivors. So for example, if one of the things that comes up for you is like, well, I'm a survivor. I know what it means to be a survivor. And that's not what a survivor looks like. Or I'm a survivor and I would never physically attack somebody. Or I don't think that victims, you know, attack their, their perpetrators, you know, or I think that mutual abuse does exist, right? That was the one that I went in on, right? And look at that and be again, like who benefits from this and who is hurt by this and how is rape culture represented in this, right? The mutual abuse one is the rape culture is represented in there by saying one, it's mutual. So therefore we're going to ignore the role that gender-based violence plays in maintaining a system of disenfranchisement and oppression. We're going to ignore that part and we're not going to address it. And we get to go back to dismissing this problem because it's between two people. We also are letting a perpetrator off the hook for their behavior by saying it's mutual abuse. They're both now responsible and they're both victims and we're just going to go hands off. The, The people that this hurts are all survivors. The people that it helps are all the perpetrators. That's how I I could figure out real quickly that this was a rape culture myth because it helps perpetrators. Then you ask, how can I change this or address this in a way that aligns me more effectively with believing all survivors? This doesn't mean just think the opposite. This means actually maybe interrogate it further. Gather information. For me, it was learning from the experts. I've worked with some survivors of domestic violence, and I know some things about this, but that is not what I do as like my nine to five, my 24 seven is not in gender-based violence, but there are people who do have this expertise and they're speaking out and they're saying a lot and they're busting these myths and they give so much great information and education because we know that information helps all of us be able to figure this out and to be better equipped to dismantle these systems. And that's when I learned how mutual abuse is actually not a thing that happens. That the nature of gender-based violence is that there is an imbalance of power and violence is reinforcing that power. The second thing to do after all of that is also to pause and ask, what do these survivors need from me? And we can do that in two situations. On one side, we can ask, what is a specific survivor who's involved in this case? What does she need from me? What does he need from me? There needs to be safety. There needs to be a community and a culture where people's lives are not threatened when they come forward. There needs to be a place where we hold people with respect and dignity and safety in order for them to be able to go through a process like this and get out on the other side feeling like 
their rights and their, their lives were protected and that they matter. And then we can ask, what do the survivors in my life and in the community as a whole, what do they need from me in this situation, right? Survivors right now need a lot of space and support and holding. They need to be reminded that they are believed and that they do matter and that it's important that we stop this terror, this reign of terror that rape culture has on us and that we're going to, we are going to change and that we are determined to make that happen. How do, how do we act out of interest of those things? How do I act out of interest of creating safety for other survivors? For me, that is speaking out about this, being clear, challenging myself to face my fear of getting exposed to the hate and vitriol, to face that fear in order to come back to standing up and standing for our community of survivors. That's how I, I want to do this. And I want to do this by speaking to all of the survivors that I know personally and reminding them that they are believed and they have power and that these kinds of things are there because they're threatened by our power. They're so threatened by our power. And that's why this happened. Somebody acted on her power and spoke out and the world and the system and this perpetrator is trying to squash it as best they can. They want to maintain the status quo and she's doing something to disrupt that. And that's really, really, really powerful. What I will say is if we want to make sure that we are not creating a culture where we tell survivors that they have to have an abundance of evidence and really good reasoning, and they have to have behaved pristine and perfectly according to our expectations of victims in order for us to be willing to believe them and be willing to fight for their safety and their value. So the next thing that I want to go to is how do we take care of ourselves through this? Because this is some bullshit and it happens often. This happening was also a key reason why I started this podcast is because of how frequently shit like this happens. Something gets pulled into the public. There's public outroar against survivors and then it dissipates and we move on to another topic, but it keeps happening. And as survivors who are trying to recover from trauma, reclaiming our lives, all of that kind of stuff, while also trying to possibly change the world so that we don't have more sexual violence and, and oppression that's acting in this way, in such a destructive way to people's lives. Like we need support and help through this. So some of the things that we can do for ourselves to take care of ourselves the first one is to, you know, go back to basics and look at like how the basics are going. The basics are things like, are you eating enough? Are you eating effectively in a way that is taking care of yourself? This is not about diet culture. This is about, are you fed? Are you getting sleep and rest effectively? It's normal that if your sleep is disrupted right now, that's totally understandable. Are you able to take time out and pause to get some rest in order to be able to continue on the next day? Drink some water. Do you need to take a shower? Is that going to help you feel a little bit better? Are you connecting with your supports and with people who validate you? These are all the basics, the basics to living, providing for the basic needs, making sure that you stay alive. And then after that, it's what do I need to do in order to feel more like myself? Our skills that we have that come back to making us feel very, very much ourselves. 
like for me, it's the Kelseyest of the Kelseys, you know, inside of me. And the most Kelsey that I feel often is when I am connected to my sense of enchantment. This is something I've been thinking a lot about, and I'll probably talk about it in the future some more. And for me, enchantment is that sense of awe that I feel with the world or the sense of magic that it feels like the world just naturally has. And there's different ways that I engage in this. It almost always comes from a place of being present in the moment to experience all of the sensations and things that are going on. Those different experiences are things like, you know, when I'm writing my fiction and I'm diving into this story and creating this world and feeling the words create something out of nothing. That's magic. Or, you know, spending time with my animals and seeing them engage in the world in this just very instinctive and playful way. When I play music and I experience the music, when I play my cello and I get lost in the sound and the vibrations and the senses of that, that also feels like enchantment. This is also when I do some of my witchy stuff. For me, it's very much a spiritual practice using ritual and ceremony as a way of connecting to my natural world and spiritual practices is a beautiful way of engaging in that too. And that depth that I feel like exists to me as a person and part of connecting to who I am as a person also means connecting to the part of me that is this warrior activist in this world, wanting to support other survivors. I also know that it's incredibly important for everybody to honor their needs around this. It might not be possible for all of us to reach down and pull up a lot of energy within us to speak out and fight back. If you're one of those, those people that has to melt into the couch right now into a puddle and it's just focusing on the basics, that's great. Any act that you engage in that brings you back to the world and keeps you alive is an act of a rebellion, especially in the face of rape culture rising and trying to smother all of us staying alive is a rebellion. But doing things that make you feel so much like yourself, the things that you know are who you are. And if you're unsure of who you are and you're feeling some disconnect from those things, come back to those basics. Come back to the little moments of joy and pleasure that you get from the world and the little moments of presence that you get to have. The times when you just notice that you're totally lost in the present moment. You're not on your phone. You're not thinking about things to do. You're not thinking about the future or what you have to do next. You're just here. For me, that often comes from being with my animals or being with my friends, talking with my sisters, playing music, writing my stories, doing magical things, feeling that sense of enchantment with my world. That's how we get through this kind of stuff. I think it's also very important to titrate your, your exposure to social media, to news, all of that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that you need to become uninformed and bury your head in the sand. Although if you need that in order to really be able to feel okay through this, then do that. Everything's going to be waiting for you when you are ready. I know people talk about like when the news becomes overwhelming to think about, you know, two or three trusted sources of news that you maybe have connect with them a couple of times a week in some way, shape, or form that feels like you're able to stay informed and be a good citizen without getting overwhelmed. I highly recommend Jessica Yellen, who is part of the News Not Noise organization. She's the founder of it and really launched and started this with the um, COVID pandemic. 
um, with the idea of giving you news without making you nervous and upset, without being salacious or engaging in a lot of clickbait. She gives you the straight news, educates you, engages with the audience and answers questions. She sends out a newsletter twice a week to educate you on all of the things you need to know and leaves out the things that you don't need to know. And when news is particularly tough, she also posts videos of her new puppy to help kind of <laughs> help us all kind of ease through all of the things that are coming out right now, because it is a lot. But I do know that we are a powerful community and we are mobilizing against this. I'm going to do what I can from my corner to really stand up and take action. And I hope that you can join me in whatever way that you can, even if that's just simply staying alive. I'm sending my love and my care to all of you. Um, and I hope that, that you're doing okay through this. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.